It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to what I think is going to be the second to last episode of Strike Talk. On that, more soon. The first attempt to form a Screenwriters Guild took place in 1920 in the living room of the playwright Thompson Buchanan. Working conditions were not great for screenwriters then. There were no minimums, no residuals, of course, no health or pension plans. And if a mogul wanted to give writing credit on a movie to his mistress, he could, and several did. So writers gathered and the movement took hold and they had barbecues and gave speeches to one another, but the reaction from the studios was instant and hostile. And it became very clear, very fast, that trying to unionize might mean being blackballed, a career ender. More in 1927, specifically to squash the idea of unions, Louis B. Mayer formed the Motion Picture Academy and enticed a bunch of writers to join him with the promise of giving out gold statues every year. Turns out writers like awards, and the formation of the Academy was enough to make the Writers Guild idea go dormant for a while. But writers, by their nature, believe in the patient pursuit of justice and equity. And by 1933, conditions had gotten so bad that the Guild idea resurfaced again. Another meeting was held, this time at Musso and Frank's, and this one stuck. The Screenwriters Guild officially formed, SAG formed later that same year. Directors, always a bit more cautious where matters of labor are concerned, didn't pick up the torch for another three years after that. But by then, 1936, the economic inequities in our business were becoming impossible to ignore. In 1936, as noted in an earlier episode of this podcast, 19 of the 25 highest paid executives in all of America were movie moguls. And yet writers, the very engine creating all of that wealth, had no standardized contract. So the movement grew. Sadly, without Thompson Buchanan or his living room, because he had died of a heart attack in 1937. But by 1942, with America at war and American movies helping to make life bearable at home, the Guild finally won the right to bargain collectively on behalf of the people who had, by then, been making magic for four decades. In that first contract, writers gained self-determination over credits, which ended the movie mogul mistress miasma. It also won minimums. $1,500 for a feature-length screenplay, but oddly, only $1,000 if the film was a Western or an action movie, which seems ridiculous now and must have seemed dumb even then. By the way, the first TV residuals that we won in 1953 were $700 for a half hour and $600 for a Western. Ouch. 
But of course, the language and even the numbers weren't the point. The most important thing that that contract established was that the guild itself had negotiated it. From that moment on, the guild was the entity that studios would have to partner with if they wanted peace with writers. As any legal scholar can tell you, the Supreme Court's 1803 decision on Marbury versus Madison didn't much impact the lives of ordinary Americans, but that decision changed the country forever because it established judicial review, the very idea that from that point on, the Supreme Court would have the final say in this land on any issue of contested constitutionality. Similarly, the first UAW sit-down strike took place in 1936, that year again, at the Fisher Body Plant Number no. 2 in Flint, Michigan, in the depths of the Great Depression. Police were brought in by the automakers to root the workers out. On January 11, 1937, police cut off heat and electricity to the building in the dead of winter and stopped anyone outside the building from bringing food to the workers for 44 days. But the workers hung in. General Motors wound up having to recognize the UAW as its bargaining partner. Today, it would be hard to find any Detroiter who can tell you the hourly wage that was secured by that negotiation because the number doesn't matter. What mattered was that something deeply meaningful had been won, the foothold, the precedent, which was that UAW was the negotiating body. My point is this, nobody starts on the finish line. John Lennon's first band was called the Quarrymen. Paul McCartney joined in 1957. George Harrison, just 14 years old, followed. They wanted to play rock and roll, which made other band members leave. The band renamed itself Johnny and the Moondogs, then went back to the Quarrymen, and this was all before they'd even met Ringo Starr. Lennon was still being taught the banjo by his mother. They rehearsed in a corrugated air raid shelter in someone's backyard, but they were building something. Nobody starts on the finish line. Joe Biden's first political office was as a member of the Newcastle County Council. Fran Drescher's first role on film was in Saturday Night Fever. Her first line was, are you as good in bed as you are on that dance floor? And by the way, she was great. It's no surprise her career took off, but she didn't start at the finish line. She had to earn that. The members of SAG are now deciding whether or not to ratify the deal that Fran and her remarkable team just negotiated. That deal, by any yardstick, is a success. SAG has just made huge gains in every facet of its contract, wins that will meaningfully improve the lives of its members, thus allowing more members to keep their careers. That is massive, seismic. I am thrilled to endorse it. It is not perfect. SAG did not get every single word of its language into the deal, but guess what? Nobody does. The WJ didn't either. What matters is establishing the precedent and then going back in there every three years to make it better. Those minimums the WGA won in 1942, $1,500 for a screenplay, they went up, negotiation by negotiation. So did the residuals. And Westerns, of course, now pay as much as anything else. We didn't win pension and health until 1960, but we have spent the next 63 years making those plans the best in the business. We battled to win jurisdiction over the internet and then went back in three years at a time to make those numbers better. SAG's New Deal is kind of like the Beatles right before they discovered Billy Preston. Already awesome, already on the rooftop, but just about to be more so. To all of those beloved actors out there, I would say this. You did great. Your courage allowed the WGA to negotiate a better deal for itself, which your negotiators then used to craft a truly industry-changing contract for you. Trust that. And know that the precedents established in that deal will be improved upon in 2026 and 2029, and in every negotiation after that. The resolve you just displayed will benefit you for the rest of SAG's lifetime.
You did what you do. You acted. It mattered. You made life better for the actors who will follow. Now let's go tell some great stories together. And I will see you at Musso and Frank's. To discuss that with me, I have my original partner in crime, Todd Garner, back again, and the president of the WGA, Meredith Steam, and the president of SAG-AFTRA, Fran Drescher. Thank you, Fran. Thank you, Meredith, for joining us. It's really exciting to have you both here. Sure. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So here's question number one. Let's say that you were sitting opposite the president of IATSE and the Teamsters. Uh, as they're about to go into their negotiations next July. What kind of advice might you give them about the experience that you guys both just had? Fran, we'll start with you. Well, I would say that um, they're not your enemy. Uh, They're there to make the best deal they can make. But your responsibility is to your member body and uh, elevating the level of Equality and dignity and partnership is mandate. Meredith? Well, the first thing I would say is we will be there for you as you were there for us. I mean, that was a game changer for us um, to have the support of the other unions, not just our own. And, you know, the really simple message, which I, I think the Teamsters know, strikes work. And that is your power. And if you have the solidarity and you know what you need... If you need to take an SAV, if you need to go on strike, that is how you get what you need. Everybody coming together was a game changer across the board. It felt like all laborers were were paying attention to what was happening out here. And it felt like we were sort of striking for everybody. Uh, Meredith, did you feel that way? I did. I, like Todd, I was surprised. I don't know if either if you were at the shrine that night, Billy, but the first night that we went on strike and all of labor was there from Hollywood, every union president or spokesperson was there and it was something new. And then not much longer, we had that downtown rally and it was the hotel workers and it was, it was all these people who I think saw their struggle in our struggle. And it was a moment of labor rising. And in saying that it felt different this time, and in saying that there was there was a difference, Fran, what what scared you the most when you when when you looked around and you saw all the changes that were happening in the business? I never felt scared. I identified um, a disconnect between the contract that we had been modifying since 1960 and the current condition of our industry that's been completely cannibalized by the digital age. And uh, streaming is such a different business model from linear television that I knew months before uh, that we had to very boldly carve some new inroads of uh, revenue to accommodate the differences in uh, compensation between linear television and streaming. You know, and I felt like we absolutely needed to put barricades around uh, AI, which I believe we did successfully. And 
now I'm eager to see this contract activated in real time so that we can keep our finger on the pulse of it, constantly analyzing it and understanding where the deficits are that must be fought for in the next contract, which is only two and a half years away. What was it that made it possible for you to rally the actors in a different way than any SAG president since I got into guild leadership has been able to come close to doing. What, what was it? First of all, logic, because you can't argue with logic. And uh, what I brought with me was the tenacity that I've always uh, expressed in this, in my career, in this industry. I, you know, I, and I felt like I needed to step up on behalf of everybody else, all my member body, and show them that we're better than this, that we deserve more than this, that we are the foundational contributors in this industry, and it's time for us to be thought of more like partners than peons. And all of that, I think, resonated, plus identifying the fact that, you know, you can't keep doing incremental changes on a contract that's basically outdated. So, you know, that was something that I was very adamant about. And uh, I think that, that speech that I made the day we went on strike kind of rang like a clear bell, like the emperor's new clothes. I, I would say this, this definitely, this strike definitely was different than 2008 because of that reason, because I feel, I, it took me totally by surprise. I mean, uh, Billy and I had a long conversation about this where I assumed that when the writers went on strike, as long as we followed the rules, meaning no writers on set, no more writing, that we'd be okay. Like everybody would be working and you guys would be walking the line and negotiating. And man, that did not happen. Immediately, everybody rallied. IATSE rallied. There were, everything was getting shut down right and left. And instantaneously, uh, the reason why I left Billy alone is I instantly felt like, uh oh, this is not a, a time for me to be like on set going, hey, how's it going over there, writer? Well, let me ask you a question. When I went through the process and, and as an observer of the process since, I believe that uh, the AMPTS uh, is a completely broken process. I think it is, uh, I think it's a false construct. I don't think those companies belong in the same room together. It was months of standing around waiting for them to figure out what their counter was because they all wanted different things. There are two contracts that they had to get right, which was SAG and the WGA, and both of them went out and both of them got what they wanted. So you could make the argument that the, uh, the Alliance cost its component members a ton of money this year that they didn't need to lose. Is it your belief that there is a possibility 
that in three years, you are facing a very, very different negotiating entity that, that, that the AMPTS will change in some fundamental way? Meredith? I hope so. I couldn't agree with you more about what you just said. It was completely a failed process. Um, and we ended up five months later saying the exact same things to the CEO that we had said to the AMPTP really seven months ago when we started in March. It hadn't been communicated. It hadn't landed. And it did seem like the uh, legacy companies were driving off a cliff with the streaming companies. You know, Netflix was running things and it just seemed to take forever for them to get on the same page. Um, so I would hope so. But they certainly, the AMPTP was still in that room to the bitter end. So they were sticking by their unit this time. But um, it was said in the room, this has been a failed process. So I hope that someone hears that and fixes it. You know, I think that to a certain degree, there are strengths in numbers. And I didn't get any indication that uh, they didn't want to stay as a collective bargaining unit. But, you know, time will tell. And, I mean, we still have an independent contract with Netflix. And uh, it, we'll see how things unfold. Whatever it is, it will be, and we will deal with it uh, uh, appropriately, you know, know before whom thou stands, as Shakespeare said. It feels like what the uh, negotiator for the AMPTS is good at is taking a pattern set by the DGA and then imposing it on other guilds, and that she is very good at saying no um, if, if there's anything outside of that pattern. And clearly, this negotiation, both the WGA and SAG, was not going to adhere to the DGA pattern, which nobody was impressed by and nobody wanted. Meredith, was it your sense that Carol has the ability to say yes to things that are above pattern? Or does she only have the ability to say no? And if that's true, what is the difference in negotiating with Carol and negotiating with an actual CEO. Yeah, well, you you were in there many times, Billy, and I overlapped with you one time in 2017. Um, she is very good at her job. She is very tricky, and um, it's hard to know uh, what she can do, but clearly their strategy was get the DGA to make a deal, get SAG to make a deal, which did not happen, but that was clearly what their plan was, and then make the Writers Guild look like they were being stubborn and unreasonable and bring them in. Um, they, but when SAG went out, that was a game changer. That was incredible that both guilds were out, and they still didn't change their strategy. They still tried to you know, make us stick to some pattern until it became completely untenable. Um, so then when the CEOs were actually in the room, then you knew you could, they could make decisions, but it was unclear. It seemed that Carol was serving a lot of masters and serving a lot of masters that did not agree with each other. So she just seemed to be doing a lot of wrangling. And a lot of those people were new. They weren't the people that were there in 2017, Billy. There were some of the old legacy company people, but it was all these 
new people that half of them did not even seem to understand how TV and movies actually work. Fran, what's the difference for you between negotiating with Carol in that stilted, extremely formal, and I think wildly problematic and unproductive process and negotiating face-to-face with the CEO? I don't like working with a middleman, to tell you the truth. And this was my first negotiation. So I was kind of taken aback by how the whole thing was uh, accepted for many contract negotiations in the past. I didn't see the wisdom in going to the AMPTP offices. I didn't like being in a room with no natural daylight. Uh, Everybody's on their computers. Rarely are they giving you the respect of looking at you when you speak. Um, There were many things that I, right off the bat, said, we're never doing that again. We're never doing this again. And uh, I found it to be counterproductive. Uh, But most important, I don't want to talk to somebody who doesn't have the authority. That's a waste of my time. So I have a question for both of you, which is now that you've looked, you've been really analyzed and looked under the hood of our entire business, there is a very strong rhetoric that none of the studios are making any money, that our business is terrible, that they can't afford to make anything, and that we are just a dying, slowly withering business. But now that you've looked under the hood, is it A, is it true? And B, what is the actual path forward and given the fact that you've now seen the real numbers and you've seen the way the business is headed? What is the answer? Is it is it that they're 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 crying poverty for real, or is it that they're just trying to maintain a level of profitability that they are hanging on to? Yeah, I think they're crying poverty. I think they've got the money. They're putting the money into the budgets. I think the streaming, uh, you know, experiment has not worked for many of them. You know, that that was, they put a ton of money into that and and hope into that. And most of them are not profitable. And returning to ads, you know, buying ads is sort of a white flag. And, you know, maybe we all go back to that model. But um, they certainly had the ability to pay us what we asked for. And they had, you know, they had the ability May 1st, and then they finally did it September 28th. Um, It was very clear to me, it was just uh, protecting their wealth. And when we finally sat down with them, I have to say, when you say looking under the hood, I thought you were going to ask about the final negotiations with the CEOs. And it was really striking to me just um, how little they understood or cared about just the, you know, the rank and file member and the fact that they had spent five months just stalling and people, people that started out broke, continued to be broke for five months. And just this, this lack of uh, concern about the struggle and the pain they put people through. And then they just paid up when they could have done it five months earlier. It's still, I I know I'm a, I'm a sore winner is what I am, but I'm still chafing at that. Well, I said on more than one occasion, they don't like to give out ice in winter. I, uh, it's not really my problem what their margins are, quite frankly. 
uh, it's not for my members to make the sacrifice so that they can either develop a poor business model or overly uh, budget things uh, to try and compete with uh, movies in theaters. It's their journey to figure it out. It's not my problem to sacrifice my members in any way to do it. You work us in to every spending dollar that this is what it's going to cost you to have me, period, and figure out how to do that so that you're able to. That's not my problem. My people have to be able to make uh, a living. And uh, with the advent of streaming, it was becoming increasingly more difficult because the uh, opportunities for residual compensation and through uh, pathways like syndication was cut off and they're essentially stuck in a vacuum-sealed box. And, you know, therein lies the rub. So you have to fix that. You have to address it. You can't ignore it. And I think that they did uh, for a long time um, and got a little bit of a free ride as a result. And, okay, no hard feelings, but now it's time to, you know, put up or shut up. In 2017, uh, Meredith, you will remember, there was a moment when negotiations got heated for us and Carol canceled the catering to our caucus room, uh, told us to go home, and then issued a press release stating that we had stormed out of negotiations. Did you feel that you were mischaracterized in that way at any point during 2023, where you were just out and out lied about in the press? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it, it's incredible. Uh, she's very dishonest. She's very disingenuous. I mean, the night that I think it was August 28th when we went in with the CEOs the first time, there were four CEOs and Carol and four of us, you know, five of us. It was five people on each side of the table. And to me, that indicated we were going to actually have a negotiation. And instead, they were belligerent and rude and said, have your membership, has your membership seen the deal we offered 10 days ago? And we had already given them a response that it didn't work. And they spent the next two hours lecturing us that we we needed to show this deal to our membership. We said we were not going to, and that we'd already countered. And then they went to the press, as you know, you know, that ended that meeting saying, well, we think it's time for your members to see this deal. It will be going out in the next 24 hours. It came out in 19 minutes. We had not left the building, right? They just sandbagged us. They just played us. It was just completely, you know, uh, not respectful, wasting our time, as Fran said, and trying something, trying a play, which the members quickly, you know, within 10 minutes, they got online and were like, why are you going around our committee? And this is a shitty deal. And, you know, it didn't work. But you know, it's just bad form. You just can't trust them. Fran, was it your sense too that they could not be trusted as negotiating partners? I mean, yes. It's it's unfortunate. I've never really been in a situation where I've been with so much aggressive energy 
and leaking things and, you know, just trying uh, hiring PR firms to discredit, to, to grab at the lowest hanging fruit, to uh, make the woman leader seem either overly aggressive or overly frivolous or, you know, there was, I mean, I, I mean, look, it was the old school playbook stuff. And I hope that it, they, they can change. They're kind of like a, a, a throwback to the 20th century dog eat dog, the bottom line is the bottom line mentality, which absolutely is so old school and can't really continue to work in the 21st century. It's so unsustainable. And uh, it's very repugnant. It's counterproductive. It's mean-spirited. And um, I don't think it's the way big business should behave anymore. In the negotiation, what did you find was particularly uh, important or galling to them? What, what, what seemed to be the thing they were most focused on, either not giving or giving the least on? Well, I, I think that they thought it was quite audacious of us to want to get into another pocket of revenue. That was not expected from us by them. And uh, for 35 days, the negotiating team for the AMPTP dismissed it, would not address it. And we just kept saying, well, we're putting it on hold. It's not going away. And interestingly enough, they kept saying, well, we're producers. So, you know, we can't really do that. That's not our, you know, we, we don't, we can't give away what we don't have. And, you know, none of that BS held water for me or Duncan or our negotiating committee. And uh, I just said, well, then we're going to have to go over your head. We're going to have to speak to your bosses. <laughs> and Duncan and I did call several of them. They just could not even believe that we felt we had a right to anything more than incremental changes on the old contract. Meredith, what was it for you? I would say they had a real hang up about the minimum staff size for television rooms. Like they really clung to that to the bitter end. Like they really, for some reason, did not want to be just basically to um, put in the NBA, which just exists. It's just codifying something that exists anyway, but they certainly did not want to do that. And the very last issue we were discussing was AI. They would not even address our proposal in May. And then the very last issue, September 27th or whatever it was, was AI. That was the thing that was just sitting there and we were just stuck. You can tell the thing that they most care about. It'll be the thing that they will not give up. The SAG contract at the very end, it was all about language on AI, um, specifically language on Schedule F actors on AI. Did either of you have the sense that the CEOs had a real granular understanding of the technology and what they wanted to do with it? Or was it more a sense that they just didn't want to be limited in any way 
until they figured out what the technology could do. I think it was the latter. I think they wanted to keep their options open to see what could be done. And when you look backwards, we sort of, you know, realized that they were, they very early gave us uh, script fees for staff writers, which, you know, Billy is like, you never get, you know, you ask every year, you never get it. And then, but they were holding strong to the minimum staff, you know, not, not giving us a minimum staff number and then holding strong to AI. So we started playing out what they were thinking, which was, they're just going to try to generate scripts with AI, hire people on a freelance basis to rewrite it, you know, a small fee for punching it up and make that the new business. And so that was, we think, why they gave us those script fees so read so easily after decades of resisting it and then clinging to AI. I don't think, when we actually talked about it in the room, I don't think any of us knew exactly what AI could or would do, but they did not want to give up the possibility of using it. And we certainly, you know, we didn't get the training, you know, prohibiting the training of our, using our material to train AI. And, you know, that's, that's still a worry. That's for in three years, we'll probably have to readdress this. I think that they're somewhat reactive to things, which I don't ever think is the best way to uh, run a business. I think that the streaming was reactive to YouTube and the AI is reactive to companies that are already demonstrating the ability to rip them off with technology that we're trying to uh, cuff their wrists with uh, over. And, um, you know, when you, you got to have a clear vision of what you want to do, and then you have to hold with that. To start, you know, being turned in every direction as new things happen, uh, doesn't really ground you on a strong foundation. You really need to have a solid vision. I didn't really see that. And then um, I think that particularly when it comes to AI, I think that there was a lot of fear involved that if we uh, put too many, box them in too much, that they're not going to be able to compete with these other companies. And they actually, you know, uh, words express that concern. Many of the problems, I believe, that we deal with currently in our culture and society is because of invention that was very too quickly embraced without anticipating potential consequence. And you know, we can see that most vividly in impact on the environment, certainly. Uh, but putting people out of, workers out of work, may, rendering humanity not uh, unnecessary in a million different ways is in the long run going to be extremely problematic for civilization at large. So I was always trying to put it into that perspective that we have a responsibility here that's greater than you just being able to have your cake and eat it too. You have to incorporate empathy 
and uh, spirituality and respect for workers in every single decision that you make, or you're on the wrong path and you're going to end up painting yourselves into a corner and pulling us all down with you. Now, whether or not that fell on deaf ears, you know, I don't know. I felt a responsibility to keep putting it into a larger uh, perspective and fighting on behalf of uh, both my uh, our member body, but also appreciating that, you know, we were on the front lines, but workers around the world were standing right behind us, also worried about their jobs being in jeopardy. The AI thing, they kept saying, well, that's not happening now. And, you know, without putting it into writing that it won't happen. It was basically, you know, you should trust us when we say that. And it's like, you haven't earned my trust. For over 20 years, studios have been using visual effects to create extras, fill, fill stadiums, fill crowd scenes, background for, for years and years and years and years. What was the extrapolation out from that that really got the AI uh, to be a valid and, and concern that you were really you know, willing to t- take to the mat there? Well, let's start with the fact that there was zero protections, zero consent. So they were just pulling my members off to the side and saying, we just need to scan you. And then what, what's that about? And then what are you going to do with the scam? With this deal, that, that, that won't exist anymore. You have to be able to not only present to all talent up and down the ladder that the job that you're being offered has AI technology connected to it. And not only do they have to ask your permission for consent? They have to show you in no uncertain terms exactly how they plan to use it. And then it's only for that job. It can never be used again unless they come back to you for consent and compensation. So this is a huge advance in AI from zero to a, 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 a very, uh, you know, advanced protections for these members who were extremely concerned that, you know, it's, it's what, what we as performers are, is our essence, our, you know, likeness, our voices, our cadence, our personalities, whatever it is, it's what makes us saleable. And uh, there was a real fear of being duplicated and rendered unnecessary and losing your livelihood. When you talk about crowd scenes, you can't decipher who those people are. And there was still 
a requirement for how many humans had to be used before, you know, there could be those blurry, fudgy, uh, indiscernible um, crowd scenes. But the technology has gotten to a place where it's far more threatening than that. And that's why we held so firm on AI. I mean, I was in a meeting with them and there were two things that were still not in place. And this was at the, you know, um, best last whatever. And uh, I said, I completely understand what those three words mean, but you know, um, best last final is when we resolve this, that, and the other, because these things I'm telling you are deal breakers. Here, I find I I personally find the CEOs that were in the room with you as people who genuinely do love movies and television. I really do. I'm not just being a Pollyanna here. I I I've, I I know them all not not well, but in my encounters with them, they they care. the The issue always becomes and has since the beginning of our business is it's a business, and and the business side is what leaks into causing to me causing all these issues you can i mean like you 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 as writers and as talent don't have to deal with business affairs like like a producer does and and generally those things are separated because there's an emotionality to to making what we make there's an emotionality to wanting to see stuff succeed there's an emotionality to your performance fran and your members performances and meredith and billy your writing and so they don't want you guys negotiating because you'll be like, fine, I just want to get it made. I just want to see my stuff, my performance. I want this part so badly. They've, they've separated that. In these strike moments is when it comes together. And it's when these things absolutely smash into each other and, and collide. And so I completely understand how dirty tactics are used, things are said, any sort of negotiation tactic is used because oh, don't forget, there's a whole other thing out there called Wall Street that we have to, as as uh, business people, placate to and say to them, we're not just a bunch of em- emotional artists. We we have a handle on this business and you can actually make s- some money doing it. We will leave it there. I wanna thank you both for joining us. Um, this was a perfect penultimate episode. Really, really appreciate your your candor and um, and your willingness to be here. Thank you, Todd, for coming back. And I just wanted to say one more thing, Billy. Thank you so much, man. Listen, I, I I dragged you into this thinking this wasn't going to be this long and thinking you and I would do it together. And you really have done something really wonderful for the town. I can't tell you how many people have told me what a what a, a little lighthouse you have been through this thing and so thoughtful and just the preambles and the amount of work and energy and passion you put into this really from the whole business, from the bottom of my heart. Thank, thank you for doing this. It really, really has been great. I want to also just say thank you to Meredith for, you know, leading and uh, with such strength and dignity and giving women leaders a great name and role model. And I feel like uh, we're, 
you know, helping to shape what leadership looks like in the future. And I, uh, and I'm, you know, proud to have uh, ridden shotgun with you. Oh, right back at you. I will never forget the first time we talked about this. And wouldn't it be something if these women leaders could make a real change? And I feel like two years later, we did. There's no question you did. Um, We will leave it there. Thank you all. In Henry IV, Shakespeare wrote, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Leading is hard. Leading artists is harder. Leading artists on strike is harder still. And leading artists on strike against corporations of ungodly riches is impossible. But these two women did it. They were doubted and misquoted and lied about, but they never lost their inner compass. They just kept leading. I find that heroic. And we are all better off because of them. On this show, we've talked about all kinds of heroes, from Abraham Lincoln to the American farmer. We've discussed Shakespeare himself, U.S. Grant, Frank Capra, Walter Ruther, Alvin Sargent, Hollywood producers, Galileo, Ida Tarbell, Emma Lazarus, Branch Rickey, and Jackie Robinson. They all believed and believe in progress. Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, but it would be another 12 years before the Boston Red Sox finally became the last team in the majors to field a black player, pinch runner Pumpsy Green. And the Civil War had been over for five years before America ratified the 15th Amendment, giving black men the right to vote. Another 50 years would pass before the 19th Amendment extended that right to women. Progress can be agonizingly slow at times, but this is not one of those times. The contract SAG just won is a triumph, a moonshot, an outcome that would have been impossible six months ago and unthinkable just a week before it actually became real. Some actors, I know, want more. That's to be expected. Artists are desirous people. We seek perfection. But perfection takes time. Pearls can take as long as seven years to form. In that period, SAG will have two more negotiating cycles in which to do more work on strengthening the language in its contract to make more progress. Actors, you put your union's crown on Fran's head. You elected her to lead. She has done so in spectacular fashion against ridiculous odds. Honor that. Trust in it. Ratify this deal, or we will all be uneasy, and theaters will go dark. Shakespeare would have hated that. I want to thank my guests and my co-host, also my producers, Hannah Baker and David Farino. I can't say be with us next week because there won't be an episode next week, but please be sure to join us the week after that for our final episode, when my guest will be, this is Strike Talk. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.